Mm-mm. It's time, folks. Almost time, that is. All right, so Steve Lillywhite, the man whose name has become, for some, synonymous with one of the more infamous Almost Was albums that, alas, never could be, is a well-respected producer, one of the more distinguished in music history. Do you consider yourself someone who likes, quote, all kinds of music, end quote? If so, then chances are Lily White's fingerprints are on the works of a band or an artist, at least one that you dig. He has worked with Talking Heads, XDC, The Rolling Stones. He carried counterculture cred for having worked with The Pogues, Susie and the Banshees, Morrissey, in addition to his late first wife, Kirsty McCall. He's also worked perhaps most famously with U2 and Peter Gabriel, and also Fish, Counting Crows, Psychedelic Furs, Guster, The Killers, Big Country, Crowded House, The Laws, Travis, Jason Mraz, and many more. He's a Grammy-winning sonic architect, and he has helped shape the careers of so many. A bluntly honest gent, and you know what? A damn funny one, too. All right, this is the part where I'm going to do some more exposition, so hop in. If you are deeply familiar with the band, you're going to know plenty of this. Maybe you'll forget that you remembered some of this. If you're not, then certainly stick around there, because we've got some retrospection to get to before the actual interview. Let's go. It's Lily White's time with Dave Matthews' band that still stands among his most distinct work. So, after three madly successful collaborations with the band in the 90s, he again gathered with the group in early 2000 to record DMB's exceptionally anticipated fourth studio album. That set never got made to completion with Lily White. In this episode, he's going to explain why, including his firing. Uh, still, though, how about this? Some view the tossed away recordings as a project that, had it been completed, would have at minimum been sitting at the table with Under the Table and Dreaming, Crash, and Before These Crowded Streets as the best work of the band's career. Some even believe that the Lily White Sessions could have legitimately competed to be DMB's best record the group ever made. Although that argument, by the way, is it's complicated ever so slightly by the fact that the album did in effect get made in 2002 but we're going to save that for the bust of stuff episode which is the concluding chapter in this multi-year transitional phase of dmb still a sizable portion of dmb's base is enamored with the mystery and the all the what if elements of the lily white sessions the semi lo-fi recordings they reveal a group in its precious slash private songwriting nook of creation, that still carries significance for fans more than two decades on, really. There's an alternative universe where DMB manages to finish this record and potentially steer itself down a different path. If that happens, every day never gets made. Busted stuff in 2002 never gets made. What becomes of DMB then? However productive or destructive that course would have been is another curiosity altogether. But here's what's always hooked me to this controversial period, and not just DMB's career, but where the music industry was at the time. How often do fans get access to something like what the Lily White Sessions was? Almost never. Look across the scene at all the huge music acts then and of that period. Official albums leaked with regularity from about 2000 to, I want to say, mid-2010s. Demo sessions and to-be-determined albums under nurturement, those those never got out, basically. This was different. The fact that it happened with DMB speaks to the passion of that fan base, the size of it, legitimacy of the art that was still incomplete, mind you, that art. And I've always, I've always thought this was interesting. And it, it was ominous foreshadowing for internet culture 
that was creeping up over the horizon. And what by that, what I mean is there was the nefarious potential for catfishing in the relatively early years of the internet. That's basically accepted theory on how the album leaked. We'll get to that in a second. At the time, remember, at the time in 2001, when the Lily White Sessions leak, DMB is verifiably the biggest American rock band in the country. That's a declaration backed up by the fact that the quintet could sell out venues more quickly than basically any other act and could do so anywhere in the U.S. The Lily White Sessions wasn't, this wasn't some years or decades later curated vault release by group management as a bonus to make more money and tap into nostalgia, right? We see that kind of marketing move happen all the time. No, this was a peek inside the studio and what amounted to a violation of the band's proprietary creative process, but also a raw look at what the group was building in the throes of its most important era. DMB didn't want it out, but here's the thing. When it leaked, a lot of people really, really liked what they heard. The release, mostly via Napster, had such widespread impact that even casual fans of the band not only knew of these so-called Lily White sessions, they had heard the songs as well, like deep cuts. It, it, it permeated into uh, a decent portion of the culture, if you will. The Lily White sessions was immediately enthusiastically embraced by fans and that reputation, it really hasn't faded much more than two decades on, in my opinion. Busted Stuff would ultimately get released with a lot of these songs on it in 2002. And again, we'll save that record and that period for the next ep. But even the, despite the release of that Busted Stuff record, it has not muted or dulled fans' imaginations over what could have been with a proper completion of the 2000 sessions. Diehard DMB fans have been waiting and waiting and waiting, I know, on a long-form Lily White conversation about the star-crossed watershed moment in DMBs. Still ongoing, oh, by the way, 30-plus career arc. I'm happy to help document that uh, and maybe even one day help chronicle and add even more context to, uh, to this in the band's career. But beyond that, I did want to bring in general music fans to a story that's unique to the music industry because the saga of the Lily White Sessions put record companies, producers, and artists even more on high alert in the years to come. This was the event in that industry that rattled a lot of cages and got a lot of people's attention, in large part because of the size of the band and the devotion of its base. Could this happen with another group? It, it, you know, it, 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 it realigned uh, a lot of the protocols that went into place when trying to make a record and put on display, hey, you could have stuff come out that you don't want to come out, and DMB wound up unfortunately being... Um, the, the unwanted and unexpected guinea pig in this whole in this whole deal. In some ways, I even think the piracy and leaking epidemic of the 2000s spawned the surprise release tactic deployed by many big artists once we got to um, once we got to the 2010s. While it's not impossible, it's hard to see a situation like what DMB went through ever being repeated. That era of the internet is never coming back. Illegal file sharing has become exceedingly diminished and lost much of its luster and accessibility in the streaming era. And while it's possible that some unwitting accomplice or bad actor could still theoretically seek to leak an album before its proper release, there are circumstances at play here where it's a full-on record anywhere that's 65 to 70% finished that gets abandoned. That's the important part. Uh, only to be foisted on the world in flippant fashion nearly a year later. I just don't know if this is ever going to surface quite ever again, which makes it interesting to look back at all these years later. When you take into account, oh, by the way, take into account the actual songs, 
gets even more compelling because they're really, really good. I don't know. I just find all of this fascinating. An episode or two about this is worth it because A, it came at a turning point in the band's history. B, the music and songwriting remains among some of the best Dave and the band ever built. Like, they should be... I think they are uh, fairly proud of what they had here, even if they weren't entirely satisfied with the process and with Lily White as they did it. And if anything, this is something that's carried on via the fans, mostly because, I mean, the band's way of making up for the Abandoned Project was to get back in the studio fairly quickly and record those songs again. Uh, but the Lily White sessions gained credibility, also in an India sense, when this was a few years ago, up and coming singer songwriter Riley Walker, who has some good guitar chops, he recorded his own interpolations of the entire thing. He made a full on cover album that was released in 2018 that's worth checking out if you haven't already. The songs here as a collective have poignant artistic merit. One of DMB's pulls from a music standpoint has not just been the powerful musicianship in the live setting and its distinct arrangement of players. But Matthews' ability to write songs with depth, ingenuity, and sometimes tap into darker themes without suffocating melodies or making these, these songs, these compositions, too dense to embrace. DMB's not a dark band, at, but at the time these songs were written, Matthews, to his own admission, and even shortly thereafter, at least for some of this period, he was in a darker place. As for the leak, a personal note here. It's, it was so huge. This is one of my where-you-were type of situations, meaning I can still see and remember what I was doing when this actually happened. Uh, it's not all that exciting. But nevertheless, I was connected on dial-up internet, watching the Academy Awards in my living room. It was a Sunday night. And then all of a sudden, word leak, you know, started to emerge that these recordings were on the internet. You want to know how long ago this was? 2001 Oscar winners. You ready for this? Best Picture, Gladiator beats Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. Russell Crowe wins Best Actor over Tom Hanks and Castaway. Julia Roberts wins Best Actress. Cameron Crowe won the best original screenplay for Almost Famous. Time's a weird thing, man. Those movies feel way older to me than the release of the Lily White Sessions and the kind of stuff from that period. But yeah, this was March 25th, 2001. It's less than a month before the band's 01 Spring into Summer Tour begins, and it's also less than a month removed from the polarizing release of Every Day in late February. So it's sandwiched between like the two biggest earmarks on the 2001 calendar for the band in what amounts to a sea change moment in their career. This all twists in a good way the perception of the band as well because the, the songs on the Lily White Sessions, they go viral. Before the, vi the word viral is even known in online culture the way that we know it now, this casts an even bigger pall on every day, which we should touch on quickly here because the album also plays, it does play a role in this saga. Uh, you know, if you're 34 or older about... You and you were into music back then. You'd remember what Radiohead did with Kid A in 2000 and how it upended all fans' expectations of where that band was going and what Radiohead was capable of. Every Day, which came out more than four months after Kid A, was like that only in a way that alienated a much larger part of DMB's fan base and because where it was clear that Radiohead was pushing forward with its music, albeit in a hard-to-decipher way initially, DMB was at best accepted as moving sideways on the Everyday LP. Glenn Ballard, who was a break-the-glass-in-case-of-emergency producer, if there ever was one on a project like that, wound up getting the nod. Matthews went out to L.A. by himself, ostensibly with the intention of taking the Lily White Session songs with him, 
plus maybe spark a new tune or two in the studio. Instead, uh, Matthews and Ballard write an album's worth of all new material in less than two weeks' time. The band flies out to meet them. The parts are mostly written for the rest of the band. It's a process so drastically different from everything the group had done to that point. The record was bound to be a dramatic departure from all previous work, which isn't to say that dramatic departures are bad. They can be great, but I've long held the belief that the band, after having slogged through their Charlottesville studio for months, having gone on the tour and did what they did earlier in the year with Lily White, the others in the band weren't going to put up a huge fight again and hit reboot for a second time. They probably enjoyed some of the process, enjoyed being in L.A., but I don't know. Like They've never remotely tried to duplicate that record-making process with Every Day again, and I think the reasons why are obvious. Plus, you can't convince me that musicians like Leroy Moore and Carter Beaufort were inspired by basically being treated as session guys, and that's in essence what happened to Every Day. Beaufort even said on the record in subsequent years that the everyday process was not something he felt comfortable with. Everyday, though not at all emblematic of what DMB represents as a quintet and is nowhere near the band's best work, it was never as bad as some fans claimed it to be. But if anything, it's a victim of circumstance and timing. I mean, it was permanently reduced to a regrettable decision after the Lily White Sessions leak, a month removed from that album's release, provided, you know, there was gold there that was not yet fully mined in Charlottesville with Lily White and never did eventually get mined with him. Those riches were, at least in the short term, they were deserted for something, well, just drastically different. As for the leak, uh, Lily White and I do get into that. So I'll save that story for the interview portion. Uh, but there are still mysteries as to whose copy was actually pilfered. It's believed all of eight people, maybe nine, but probably eight, five band members couple producers, one A&R guy with RCA. Those are the people who actually had the copy. And the longstanding theory all these years later is that a band member unknowingly had their their CD briefly uh, swiped, copied, and then it kind of went from there. Here's what the band had to say about the leak. This is back in May of 2002 while appearing in a special hour-long all-DMB episode, Last Call with Carson Daly. Daly, as I recall, was a genuinely huge fan of DMB, he knew what the deal was when he brought this up to the guys. You'll hear Matthews, you'll hear Beaufort. And the band did speak to this issue with relative frequency in 0102, but they haven't much since then. But here's a little, you know, transport back in time. Take a listen. I want to talk about the Lily White Sessions, and maybe you can explain to everybody what exactly happened in, in March of 2000 you went in to record. I think eight or nine of the tracks came initially from the Lily White Sessions, and maybe somebody could explain exactly what happened with that. It went all crooked. <laughs> the song, well, you how, know, how finished did the songs get? They didn't get finished, and yet nearly a million people ended up with a copy of the infamous, they've become like... Yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, people, we, we, can't, we can't be upset that people want to hear what we're doing. So I'm not upset about that, because people want to hear it. That's a, that's a gift. You know, we, but we, uh, I think we'd all agree that we sort of, we, we started something and it started well, but it kind of, it kind of got heavy and the room got darker and we, we didn't have the energy to finish it. It's kind of like painting a picture. I've said this a thousand times. And then loving it, but saying, but I can't finish it. I got to put this down. And then go and walk in, into a gallery somewhere and go, damn, it's up. You know, and people looking right. at it. You know, it's, 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 it's like, what happened? How did it you get know? there? I don't want that. And then having to answer, you know, and then having people come out and, uh, you know, maybe critics or people saying, why is that? It, because it's not finished. Right. <laughs> How much did it surprise you that it got out? 
and in that much, I mean, nearly a million people ended up with a copy of that. Hey, how did they get a copy? That's a good question. Yeah, it was. A, this was these were these were studio sessions that lasted eight or nine, eight or nine tracks, not completely produced yet. For whatever reason, you don't want to put it out. You call it quits for a second, and then this copy gets out, and you don't know how. No. <laughs> no, there's lots of right here. Just a, a stereotypical yeah. leak of a record. Yeah, it's it's a it's a lot of lot of you know, like you say hearsay, yeah. you know, on on how the record got out. But, but the weird thing was it was they were all just they, they were basically ideas, you know. Mm -hmm. They were all ideas. You could hear in the background. You can hear us telling jokes. You can hear us laughing. You can hear us doing all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, in the, in the recordings, and it it pissed us off. Really pissed us off, and we heard that on the on the internet. You know, it's like whoa. Right. You know, I thought it was a joke at first. I thought, you know, some kids got, got the record and, and they were just songs of somebody else, you know, some, some other band and people like saying they had music of us. Right. But I downloaded it and it was exactly... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carter, yeah, because Carter came, because Carter, you, you came in and you yeah. said, I heard it. I heard it. It's and there. It's, it's and, us. You know, yeah, and the, that, the thing was that, you know, you can't... The, the, the frustrating position we were in was, you know, we don't... You don't want to say, no! bad people for not for liking us right. you know but but at the same time you want to say damn it yeah and how it got out you know think about every album that comes out that there's a demand for now it's almost impossible to stop them from getting out right yeah. okay i think that covers a lot of what needed to be put on the table a crash course in advance of getting to this interview a credit and shout out to copper pot five for capturing and preserving that video on youtube so let's talk to the man himself the guy who was behind the control board for this process all those years ago. Here is my conversation with Steve Lillywhite. Mr. Steve Lillywhite is here. Steve, it is, oh my goodness, it is a joy. This is so long awaited. My deepest, deepest thanks for finally, we finally get to talk about the thing that we have talked about talking about for years and years. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well. Uh, well I, I'm just coming off the back of a little bit of a croaky cold and a bit of a sore throat and a cough. So if I do, uh, if I laugh, then I'll probably <laughs> cough. Okay. So I'll try not to laugh. Although I'm, I'm, I'm in a pretty good place nowadays. Uh, my life is nice and sensible and uh, and ordered, and and I love it. Yeah, it's all good. That's wonderful to hear. You are you are. You live on the other side of the planet now. As we record this podcast, you are actually in New York. We recently were able to have a wonderful, wonderful lunch together. I insisted on paying. You insisted on not letting me pay. So thank you again for that. But it's wonderful to be able to talk to you on like normal East Coast time here before you uh, you hop on the yeah. bird back to the other side of the of the planet. Yeah, that, that's right. I'm I'm in New York. I was here for my son's graduation last last weekend, and uh, and yeah, I'm I'm going back to Indonesia. Tomorrow night, which is a heck of a flight, I have to tell you. A heck of a flight. I'll be okay, including the seven-hour layover in Abu Dhabi and two stops. But I will finally get, I'll leave Wednesday and get to my destination Friday night. There you go. Accept the things I can't change, and it's something that I do. So it's all good. We might have to uh, touch on those very themes on this very chat we're about to have here okay so let's get right into this because who knows how long this may uh, this may take let's start with you getting the job to produce 
the Lily White sessions with that, which at the time obviously weren't referred to that. So you do BTCS. It's a huge hit. You produce, you mix that record. It goes number one. That starts a still intact streak for DMB, by the way. That record went number one when it debuted. Every subsequent Dave Matthews record, Dave Matthews band record since then has gone number one upon its release. That's late April of 98. Now the sessions, I talked with Steve Harris. He said he remembers those sessions starting in January of 2000. So Steve, there's about a 20 month gap between streets getting released and you actually convening in Charlottesville for the sessions. When would you have gotten, do you think, the Word. reaffirmation or confirmation that you were the guy again? Like, when you finished Streets, was it like, I'll see you for the next one? Or was it something where either RCA, the band, management, contacts you maybe late 99 and tells you we think you're the guy again? Yeah, it, it, it was all very loose. I mean, I honestly, after Under the Table and Dreaming, where they got uh, Tom Lord Algae to remix it, my, you know, because in those days, if someone remixes your album, it's a sort of indication that you didn't do your job. And, and I felt sort of a little bit down. I was going through my divorce at the time. And, and, and I kept getting word that, oh, that, you know, the album you did called Under the Table, it's doing pretty well in America. And I'm in England. I'm going, really? Oh, okay, good. Good for them. Well done, Dave. I, li I liked you, Dave. So when I got the call for the second album, it was like, really? You want me to? But but you got someone else to remix it. So it was it was very nice of them to call me back. And then and then um, on the third album, again, it was, you know, at that point, I, you know, we, we, we we'd established ourselves. So it was it was more like, Steve, uh, what do you think about the next album? And, you know, they said, we want to record it in, uh, in the plant. It's, it was always the band's decision. I mean, even on the first album, they had booked Bearsville Studios. And, you know, I had said, fine, that's good. As long as they have a table tennis table, I will be fine. And um, we went up there and... So, so, so for this one, I, I remember it being sort of, well, probably I'll get to do the next one because everything had gone pretty well to plan. I mean, Crash was the, you know, when you look at the first three, you look at Crash as the one, in, I'm, uh, for all you people, I'm showing a pyramid here. Uh, Crash was the one in the middle and Under the Table and Dreaming and Before These Crowded Streets were not quite as big as Crash. You know, so it was... It went from under the table dreaming up to crash in terms of sales. And, and then it was, you know, there was a couple of, oh, there's seven minute long songs. And there was, it was almost like before these crowded streets was a sort of a, 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 a bedding down type album to show that, look, we're not a pop band. We are a serious band. You've come this far with us, join this journey, you know, and, um, so, so when it came to the fourth album, I, I, it, it seemed sort of natural that I would be, I would be the, 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 the captain of the ship. It was, you know, I, it, I felt that I got an arc in terms of, of, of how the sound develops over the three albums. And I didn't keep it the same. There's, there's subtle differences, you know, to, to people outside of Dave Matthews' band, oh, they all sound the same. But but to people who understand and, and who know, they can hear very much a, a a progression in in sonic terms between the three albums and 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 how it developed. And that was all very planned, you know, on my part. Uh, so having said that, you know, when when I got word that they were 
wanting to record in their hometown, immediately I got red flags, you know, because, you know, I, I've said this before, but, um, but you know, you, th there's a very different feeling to going away to record your album. You know, when you go away, it's like going on holiday. You go and you stay in a nice hotel. You're away from, say, the wife or, or those sorts of domestic problems. And it's only a set amount of time. You've only got the studio book for two months. So you know exactly what you're doing for that two months. When they said to me, Steve, we want to build a studio in our hometown, I went, ah, okay, no problem, because I'd never see things as a problem. Mm -hmm. I would never say, don't do it. But my job is to, is to explain to them what the problems, possible problems could be, because I'm, a, you know, I've been producing albums a long time, and I, and I can, one of the things I'm good at is knowing when problems are coming, you know, or so I thought. Um, so anyway, I did know there was the possible problem of recording in your hometown because the basic thing is it becomes a job and you then therefore go to work. Now it's a very big difference to going on holiday and going to work. And um, coupled with a lot of other problems that, that were occurring at the time, I mean, the studio was an old dance hall that was... Um, that, you know, the, the building was for sale and no one really wanted to buy this building with a very low ceiling dance hall. It was, it was quite a oppressive room that they wanted to make into the studio. But I said, okay, it's possible to do it here. You know, we, we can get a relatively good sound. Let's, let's give it a go. Was this like, is this like mid 99? Are you doing an effect like, are you maybe getting a call when they're on their tour? Are you doing a site survey? Like, are you going to this building like months before you record just to get a sense of like, what are yeah. we going to, and are they going to you? Like they had not done this. So who are they relying on to say, we're going to buy this property, this house, and we, we need it to be converted to a studio space. Was it some of your expertise, some outside expertise? I'm just trying to get a, yeah, a sense it, on. It, it was, on it was a little bit me. It was a little bit Harris. It was a little bit Jeff. Bagby, me and Harris. And we were discussing what we needed. And, um, and, you know, it was, it, you know, we, we, we came to the conclusion that we could do it. But still, there was, there was that thing in the back of my mind that it can be done, but it needed a mental change from everybody involved. It was not a sprint. This, we were, we were on a marathon. Now, I had been involved in marathons with, with you two mainly, you know, who had a recording studio in their hometown. And, uh, and it, you know, the, the, the days become weeks very, very quickly because there's things to do. There's daily life to deal with. And there's that thing that it's a job. And now the great thing about when you start in music, it's a vocation. And a vocation is like everyone starts music as a vocation. No one really starts music as a job. And the great thing about a vocation is that it's, you're not working. You're doing it because you love it. The bad thing about a vocation is, by definition, you're not really allowed to complain about it because it's not a job. The great thing, the bad thing about a job is that it's a fucking job. The good thing about a job is that you're allowed to complain about it because that's how you let off steam about what you do and earn a living in your job. You, you let off steam and, and, and very... And it became like a job 
for many members of the band. And, you know, they, and they were not seeing, anyway, we'll get further on down the line, but, but, but that's, but yes, I, this is something that I warned them all before we started. Okay. I want to talk about the dynamic of the band right when you start. There's no Tim Reynolds. Okay. This is just the five of them, right? There's no Tim Reynolds involved. So for you as a producer, I believe that was the band's decision to do that, but they were just going to make the uh, record with just the five of them. But I don't know if you've ever really talked about this, but you had always done the first three records and Tim in one channel, Dave in the other. Um, maybe this excited you, uh, a new challenge, just that aspect when you learned about it and be like, all right, I'm just going to do the five here and there will be no guests. That was always the plan from the outset with this record. Uh, can you talk about at least preparing for that dynamic before anything else uh, you right. know, unfolded in the well, studio? Well, again, I, at the beginning, I only said for Tim to come in because Dave had said, we want to use Tim Reynolds. I had never, ever said at the beginning that you need someone else to help make your record. I don't think like that. But when Dave said, there's this guitar player who I want to bring in to do overdubs, I I realized right at the very beginning that it was so important that he should be there for the whole experience. So my idea was to bring Tim in right at the very beginning. Uh, So when they said, okay, we don't want anyone, just the five of us, I I sort of went, and apparently it was because they'd just been out on tour. They'd done a great tour. They didn't feel like they needed anyone. They wanted to do it themselves. My job as a producer is to honor the artist, you know. So if they said they didn't want to do it, um, again, this is going to be, this is going to add more time. This is going to add more question marks. We needed to be a stronger, tighter team. And, and, of, and of course, you know, and it's my job, you know, at the end of the day, it was my failure because my job is to lead. And, you know, I didn't. So I'll take all, all responsibility for, for any, any lack in quality except for the fact that it was never finished. So you can never judge it because they lost their nerve before it was finished. And, you know, be that as it may, I, um, you know, I can't change that. You know, it, it, it is what it, it, it was what it was, which is a horrible expression. I hate that expression, but, you know, nothing you can say. Understood. When the studio is getting built out, uh, Harris talked a little bit about like you had these huge booths built, one for Dave, and Leroy would sit in this one. And as I don't know if you arrived in January and you kind of just saw it, or if you kind of took a couple trips to to Seaville, but as you saw it being built, as a from the eye and mind of a producer, Steve, I'm just wondering if you were looking and you were like, it's not even just that it's in the hometown. It's just Harris said one of the biggest reasons that he thought it went sideways is, is like, the sonic quality that we were getting from the studio, it was giving people ear fatigue. And, and I don't know if you saw, let's, let's even put aside your concerns about doing it in your hometown, but the actual yeah. sonic elements, the way that, that it would bounce off the walls, the low ceiling, were you seeing a challenge there initially, or was that something that maybe surfaced a few weeks into the recording process? I don't think that the, 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 the core sounds that we were recording I thought were okay. The drum sound was not bad. I mean, we couldn't get a particularly 
really live sound, but it was a tight, crisp sound, and I thought that was good. The bass sound was okay. Actually, when I re-listened to it the other day, I thought the, the acoustic guitar sound, but that just needed some EQ. It needed some help. Yes, what, what the, the problem with it was the, was the oppressive quality inside the room because the ceiling was lower than most houses. Mm. So it was, it just didn't, you know, maybe I was having the speakers loud to try and get the vibe going because <laughs> at, at one point, and you, I hadn't, I'd forgotten all about this, but at one point my ears folded. Really? Because, because of the monitoring was so loud and because we didn't have a control room. We, we, we had the mixing desk set up. So it was- Meaning we you were not separated by glass. No, we were not separated by glass. So there was no way we could really tell the sound quality until we played it back. Uh, it's it's not like a bad thing. Uh, Peter Gabriel has a similar studio in London called in in the country outside of London called Real World. It's 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 not a usual thing, but it's not something that is necessarily. But but maybe Peter Gabriel's studio had been acoustically designed for that purpose. What we had wasn't, it was just a, it was a very bad sounding dance hall. But, you know, I, I okayed the idea. And, and to be honest, when I listen back to those rough mixes, they were perfectly within a, within a ballpark. Look, I mean, just to, to, to explain to you, what people have only ever heard mm-hmm. are like 12 or 13 songs that I mixed all in a morning on my own. In one like morning. I just literally pushed the faders up and was doing like a live Bagby mix, you know. So it was, uh, it wasn't like I even spent an hour on each song. I spent, you know, I spent like, I would listen to it once and then record it, listen to it once, then print it. Look, it's not, (laughs) it's still, so, so, so for that, I thought it was, yeah, now it's funny enough when I listen back to the songs, I go, okay, you know, and I would have had that clarity. If I'd come back, even in the same place, it would have been okay. If I'd come back in the end of the summer and said, okay, this is what we have to do, you know, uh, digging a ditch, fucking brilliant. Big eyed fish, can't beat it. Grace is gone, fucking brilliant, you know. Captain, a little bit of work. Bartender, a little bit of work. Gray Street, let's record that again because Gray Street was all over the place, you know. Uh, you know, and, 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 and we would have, I would have, you know, in typical me fashion, I would have said, this is what we have to do and written it down and everyone would have gone out and, and we would have done it, you know. But I was never given that chance. So, um, but yeah, as I say, there's, when I listen back, there's three, I think, that are good. I mean, those three are just like, Fantastic. You know, Busted Stuff was close. JTR was actually... Come on, Steve. JTR's awesome. What are we talking about right now? Well, the outro is fucking brilliant, I have to say. Yes. You do have to say. Um, (laughs) uh, Monkey Man could have been great. I've got a feeling... We did another version of Monkey Man, or there was something else about Monkey. Because I remember thinking at certain times that Monkey Man was one of the greatest things I'd ever done. So then, then the version that ends up on that thing may ugh, lost think in the. A, think there's a different one. Okay. Right, yeah, we... oh yeah, because there were many versions of many of these songs. Because 
you know, there's one thing I would always do with them. It was almost like fast tracking gigs, you know, by getting them to play it live always together, they would unlock their parts. So um, it would take time to jam the songs because, you know, after a time when you play them live, they get better and better and better. And you, you, you bed in these great ideas and you learn them. Then you, then you forget them and they become like muscle memory, you know, instead of just looking at a, then you feel what you're playing because you know what you're doing. So then you can put the feel into the performance, you know, but Hey, well, we're going to circle back to those songs. Don't you worry. Let's, let's, uh, let's focus in on say January, 2000, what you might be able to remember. Now, Steve Harris said he thought the band was in great spirits. I think you even mentioned that when we, when we had it prior to this, but it's on record. I think this is after Dave told Rolling Stone, like he was drinking more heavily at the time. He had lost his stepfather. He had lost his uncle. Many of the songs did have a darkness or gloominess to them, but for the most part, Harris recalls the, see, I think this is, I think this is important to documenting the history of, of the making of, of these sessions. Uh, Steve Harris said, listen, the band was in good spirits. Now, they got worn down by being in the studio and being outside was just more fun than being inside because the room was enclosed and all that. I think that wore on them eventually. But do you remember it the way he does when you arrived there those first few weeks? Like there wasn't the way that we hear these demo cuts now. I think fans might want to attach themselves to this idea that the band was collectively in a very dark place. But that might not have necessarily been the case when they were doing this. Like they were, they were coming off, you know, they're at their, the peak of their of their stardom yeah. too. As all this is happening, no, no. Well, 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 there was no reason for them to be in a bad place. I mean, you know, they were in their hometown, what they wanted. They were, you know, because they'd been grumpiness about going away to record, and you know, because they were always on the road, even when they're making an album. Corin always kept them busy, you know. So now they were in their hometown. They were able to to go to their local barber or whatever they do you know and um what wasn't there to like no so they were very happy you know and and yeah the room was oppressive but you know it's it's very different maybe the the the, the tim element is something that that is possibly overlooked in this whole thing in terms of, of 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 you know dave was using a 12 string right First time ever, yeah. Yeah, first time ever. And that, and that, you know, when I listen back to the songs, it instead of it sounding like two six strings, it has a sort of misty quality that, that is very difficult to, to really pick out. Again, with some equalization and, and some middle and some in the sound, it might have brought it a little bit closer to the face. But, um, but, but yeah, it was... Look, I've been in studios all my life. Maybe I, I didn't realize it was quite as oppressive as they, they did. Okay. You know, I mean, I was, I was, you know, pushing them up the hill, trying to push them up the hill. You know, it was the first time ever, really, that, that things hadn't gone immediately great in the studio. I mean, it started off great. But it, it was a slower process and it was a, a mix of all things, you know. It was a mix of the room, it was a mix of of working in Charlottesville, it was a mix of Dave, you know, uh, maybe Dave's drinking. It was a mix of me being not empathetic to the whole situation. And I, I'll stand up and say that. 
I was not empathetic to, 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 to how Carter especially was feeling. Uh, but, but all of them really, you know, I, I, yeah, cause I was sober and Dave, Dave and Harris would, would, would become the drinking buddies and I would be the designated driver. Actually, I would drive them into Charlottesville at night because, you know, I was sober. So it didn't bother me about driving and they had a driver to drive them home. So, so Dave and Harris sort of became more buddies because there was, drinking involved whereas before dave and i had become buddies on the first three albums you know so um yeah i'm just i'm just riffing here i'm I'm not quite sure where i'm you are you are riffing in in the most wonderful ways um okay with with that in mind do you reflecting back on it when we talked about under the table and crash you said those were just you know they went brilliantly Streets, for the most part, went well, but you even said when we talked, Don't Drink the Water was the one track where they, like, suddenly there was... But then you worked overnight, you played it for them, they're like, holy crap, yeah, yeah, we did yeah. all this there stuff, was, right? There was, there was definitely... Um, there was a little bit more... No, not tension. It was, look, hey, most records are not easy to make. Mm-hmm. You know, I come from the school where you've got to just sweat blood to get something good, you know? And um, so with, you know... It's never the playing with Dave Matthews Band. They're brilliant players. It's get it's it's conceptualizing what the record will be, you know. And I don't think we ever quite. I never quite got that right on this album because, for the three of them, for, for well, yeah, there's really only yeah, acoustic guitar, bass, uh, violin, and and saxophone, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 the violin and saxophone don't drive it, really. You know, so it still needed some more. The jigsaw was only half done. You know, I still needed to put in some more pieces in the jigsaw and work out, you know, and maybe if I'd come back, I would have said, let's get some other players in, you know, let, let, let's look at what we can do or, or, or anyway, you know, it was right that we stopped but, you know, I've often stopped on, on, on the Peter Gabriel album I did. We had lots of breaks. And when you have a break in recording, it's very easy to come back and go, oh, the things that I was so, you know, when you look at something from a little bit of distance, you can really, really see what to do, you know. And uh, I was never given that chance. And that's my only my only gripe, really, because... Um, I had a history of being of, of success, of being able to do that, you know, but uh, I wasn't allowed that chance. And hey, but it was, I should maybe have never have allowed it to get to that point. And that was my fault. And, you know, obviously I, I'd, I'd lost the, the um, confidence, I think, of, of, of the band. Is that something you had encountered much in your career where you had actually lost the confidence of, a, no, of an artist? No, no, band never. Were... I've always, it's always been important to me. I think, um, and, and I've always prided myself on my sense of empathy when it comes to dealing with musicians of any sort, be it a master musician like Carter Beaufort or a sort of non-musician musician like Boyd Tinsley. You know, I could relate to both of them equally. Now, there's no other producer in the world who's ever, innate, who's ever managed to talk to both of those people 
because they are so diametrically opposite in their in their thought process about music you know that um but i could manage to unlock both of them i mean anyone you know carter's brilliant it's it's not that difficult to unlock you know to be carter's mate let's face it he's one of the greatest drummers in the world but 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 with boyd i was always very proud of the my ability to 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 work with him and understand him and and understand the situation what i didn't on these sessions understand was the overall vibe you know and that was my fault there's no question about it my lack of, lack of empathy for the total there was also things like oh uh, anyway carry on no expand on those thoughts please things like what shut up no no i won't mention it no it's just it, culturally things were 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 strange you know, because we were living in the house and I remember someone at one point had a gun and I remember freaking out because really? I'm not like, you know, and I know it's every American's right to own a gun. And, you know, it was like all sort of, hey, let's go shooting. And, and it was like, and I, you know, I was definitely the, I made my, my thoughts clear that I was not happy living in a house that had guns in um and you know maybe that that sort of made people look at me a little bit like who's that guy you know i don't know okay so in, when you're doing this you're actually staying on well, i guess we refer to as a compound there where you've you're basically yeah, living yeah, on yeah, the property yeah, okay yeah 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 Huh. Interesting. Uh, interesting dynamic there. Um, I appreciate you speaking about your empathy with all this. Uh, did any of when we consider? I think it's important for listeners to to be reminded again in this moment. We're talking early two thousands. DMB is in its apex. Okay, it is as popular of an American rock band that exists at this point. Did that? I don't know if pressures came attached with that to make this next record to make make it bigger and better than than Streets or if or if on behalf of how you saw this how band management, who I don't even know how much you would have talked to them, or the band themselves, if there was this idea of we can sell out football stadiums in minutes at this point, we know this is going to be this highly anticipated next record. Everyone's been a huge hit to that point. When you say you lacked a certain empathy, was it more that you got a little bit of tunnel vision on the record's the record, man? You're the same five guys that we did the first three on. Let's just focus on this. And maybe there were outside influences or forces that were maybe more at play that either – you didn't realize were there or did, and you just kind of put them aside? No, I didn't think. I, I never think like that. Okay. I mean, it's always just like I'm in the studio, whether it's with the Rolling Stones, Dave Matthews Band, or a fucking tiny little band that, that I'm with. You know, it's, uh, I, I do what I, my, you know, I try and do the best I can do. And, um, and I mean that from my heart. I try not to be complacent. Maybe I'd run it, you know, Maybe I didn't realize I'd run into a dead end, you know, but with every dead end, you can find another door. You know, I mean, mm. I, I absolutely believe that. And when I listen back to them, I feel that seven or eight, nine of them were, were definitely retrievable, you know, and they were, and they were re-recorded. And, um, you know, so, so they did come out and they were released as an album. They were, in, they were indeed in that All right. Although, to be honest, between you and me, Matt Norlander, I don't think I've ever heard that album. You have not been able to bring yourself to listen to the record. Well, no, I don't really need to. Mm. You know, it's weird, and I don't, you know, I yeah. don't mean that nastily, but, but it's, uh, why would I want to listen to 
to, to, to it. I don't know. I didn't even get a bloody name check on it. Well, that's something that we've talked about offline. Yeah. That, that you that, 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 so that, Probably that, one of the most hurtful things they've ever done to me. And what, I'll, I'll set this, you can, I just, what you're getting at here is when DMB released Busted Stuff in 2002, in the liner notes of that record, Steve Harris, who was your longtime engineer, um, yeah. uh, produced the record, and then Glenn Ballard, of course, produced Every Day. But in, the, in those liner notes, the band actually thanked Glenn Ballard. Uh, you were not mentioned in the liner notes, and you've said before, that, that is something that really... That that's significantly hurts you. Can you can you expand on? Uh, yeah. expand on well, that? there's nothing much to to expand on. You yeah. you basically said it. I I um, I put my heart and soul into that record, uh, and you know, not to be thanked in any way on the liner notes, and Glenn Ballard being thanked on the liner notes, even though they were the songs that I was. Yeah, I I, I just didn't. It, it it hurt more than any financial or reputational thing ever because my reputation's always been pretty good you know and to be honest the you know the the entertainment weekly review was very nice but but then when it finally did get re-recorded and people understood that these were great songs and that you know then they don't even thank me you know i i i was really hurt i have to say that yeah but um you know but you eventually, what, what can I do? Yeah. Nothing I can do. There you go. That's you, life. But you, you eventually, I believe, did, and we'll get to the actual you learning that they were not going to do this record in just a second. But I wanted to at least touch on stuff that was in the sessions with one more question here. You eventually sure. buried the hatchet. Obviously, you recorded another record away from yeah. the world in 2012. But you know, because you did that, I would assume you know some of this stuff would have been expressed to the band um, because I know there were there were certainly some rough moments there. And I'm not going to have you. I'm not going to ask you to to relive everything. But I know even at one point you and Stefan, who have since buried the hatchet, you might have had a little bit of a, <laughs> a tete-a-tete on on Twitter, which I never wound up. I, I remember hearing about it. I never. We don't need to replay the whole thing. But I. You but know what? Clearly, I can't even- I can't even remember what it was about, but it was. Um, there was something about you bringing, I think, people back to the studio that weren't oh, in the band or something. Yeah, like I know that. it was so weird. It's I, I, and I remember it. I we, we brought a couple of girls back to the studio one night, and I think I introduced them as Dave's band, mm. and I think that was maybe not the right thing that I should have that I should have said, especially the way they were feeling. But it really, really was like touched a nerve. And it was something that, that even to this day, they, they, you know, and, and I shouldn't have said it, you know, they are all the band, never more so. And I've never been more than, you know, it's been, God, if anyone has been pushing it as the, as Dave Matthews, as a band, it's been me, you know, I, 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 you know, and, and it's been very much my idea of bands is to always work with the weakest link to make it better. So I, you know, I, but yes, I made a mistake this one night. Maybe I was a little bit nervous. I, I think I, I have a slight, and, and I think people who know me well, including Dave Matthews band, they, they would admit this, that I have a slight, very, very mild version of Tourette's that when I get nervous, I say things that are not possibly inappropriate the things that are not possibly appropriate and and i just like like an idiot i said hi hi, hi th- th- this is blah blah and two girls and and this is uh dave's band and of course that yeah. you know i said it without even you know and 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 it 
never thought about it. But was it addressed with you by the band members while you were recording this, or was this something you? No, came it to was learn never. About? It was never said. Wow. Okay. So but, you. So uh, you were oblivious to this until all I was those years oblivious later. To, yeah. to you know, but it was. Uh, but for some reason, I do remember saying it, and maybe even thinking, yeah, maybe that was wrong. But, but I didn't realize it was such a big deal, you know. But they were very, very sensitive at the time, and uh, and the fact that maybe I wasn't in there when I. I don't know. I, I can't remember the um, the times of it. But, you know, but I, Dave was drinking. I don't think he was drinking a heck of a lot more than he normally had done before. Okay. Maybe it was affecting him in a different way. But um, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely a little darker. But, but you know, you, you put that down to the deaths in his family and... You know, hey, we recorded Under the Table and Dreaming not long after Anne had died. Right. You know, so, and he didn't seem to be much affected at that point. So you can't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. When, uh, when the sessions wrap, do you think it's April, May? When you, when you, when you stop and at the time you think you're going to pause and return to him. But how deep into the year 2000 do you think that is, Steve? Oh, God, I don't remember. Okay. Fair I enough. I have no idea. It's, um... Yeah, it was. I, put it this way. Put it this way. When did we start recording? Do we know when we started? January recording? of two thousand. January of two. Well, let's like take a couple of weeks by the time we get everything set up. So middle of January, probably three months. Yeah, January, March, April. No, maybe four months. Okay. Which is not really very long. You two albums see 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 seasons come, seasons go. You know. Especially in your hometown where the clock isn't ticking mm -hmm. like like it does at the record plant. Right, you know? exactly. All right, so you rap, and when you part ways, in your yep. mind, you've got you know, 12, 13 songs that have been laid down and cut, and you, you, what, you're going to go back to England for four or five months while the band goes on tour? No, 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 I was living in New York at the time. Okay, so you're living in New York at the time, so you're going to go back to New York, and in your mind... You're going to what, just sit on these recordings because the masters are obviously in Charlottesville. So are you like working on another record What while you're waiting before no, you no, actually no, get no. Call, I was having doing? the summer off, I think, because I was, you know, everyone was was pretty knackered. I mean, they were going off on the road. Yeah, but I I don't. As I say, when it's a vocation and I still to this day call it a vocation, I don't do it as a job. I don't need to work. It's when something comes up that I want to do. I, you know. And to be honest, that's how I get all the good jobs is that I, I'm always, you know, because a lot of producers will say, well, I'd love your album and I'll do you, a, you know, this time next year because I'm booked up till then. I'm never booked up because I never, because something can come along that I go, you know, I'm, I, I'm never booked up one after another. I, I've never been like that. I've always like, let me finish this first. Then I'll decide what I want to do next because, you know, it's not a job. Okay, so here's a, I'm going to read two quotes from the Rolling, a Rolling Stone story from 2001. The first is from Carter, and I sent you, uh, I sent you this uh, over email before we talked, but right. he said, Bruce, referring to Bruce Floor from RCA, he said, Bruce and I stepped outside one evening after doing some takes, and he said, Carter, how do you feel about this record? I had just come out and, and tell him I wasn't feeling it, the vibe wasn't there, you know? It was lacking everything that the Dave Matthews band was about, so I said, look... I don't feel it, and I'm almost certain the other guys don't feel it. We need to make a move. And Bruce said, quote, that's all I needed to hear, end quote. From that point, he began working to find someone else to produce the record and working toward putting our heads forward in a positive space. And here's what Dave said. 
He said, uh, the Lily White sessions, quote, inspired pity, uh, self-pity or pity for the sad bastard that wrote them. I felt like I was in the process of failing, in the process of letting everyone down, in the process of not supplying the band with songs, not giving the producer the music, not giving the record company tunes. So inside that environment, I was continuing to do just that, come up with these sad bastard songs. That's them talking about a year after, about from when, uh, from when the decision got made to ultimately uh, fire you. When you got word that you were not going to be working on this record, how did you actually receive that phone? Was it delivered to you over a phone call? Did you meet anyone in person? And who was the one that actually delivered that message? It was a phone call from Corin Capsule uh, in August. I remember it very well. I was, uh, I was in New York. And yeah, it was... I must admit, it, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know it was coming. Um, I hadn't thought about things that much. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much a airbrain in a lot of things. I mean, I, you know, but no, I didn't see it coming. I have to say, I, I thought that things were, were going slowly. But I felt between September, October, November, we could have turned it around didn't take, didn't need that long with a, with a clear vision of what we were going to do. It would have been fine. And, um, you know, but, but look, you imagine Bruce floor taking Carter out and saying, are you feeling these sessions? I mean, Carter's never going to go. That's like, you know, defend your album. Of course he's not, you know, he's going to crumble. He's not going to say anything. And, and I, I understand him, you know, understand him talking, saying his mood about the recording rather than quality of the recording. It was the mood of the recording that was um, that was that was put in in question, you know. And um, yeah, it was. I must say, I, I, I don't think I'll ever forgive Bruce Floor, to be honest. But um, why not? Uh, because. He was mean and, 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 and weak, you know, and just doing what, I mean, he did what he had to do, I suppose. Uh, but he could have come to me with all the, the experience that I have and had and all the, the time that we'd spent together, you know, and uh, he, he wasn't even the one who, who, who called me. It was Corin Capshaw who called me. So, hey, but look, it's, it's, um, it's all right, you know, but it, you know, yeah, it was weirdly still the thing that's the saddest thing is that I didn't even get a liner note. Thank you on busted stuff. Isn't that weird? I mean, out of everything, that was the one thing that, 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 that has, that riles me the most, Matt Norlander can certainly understand why that's the case. Uh, real quick for people that might not be familiar, I want you to give us a producer's perspective on, on, on uh, Bruce Floor works with A&R with RCA Records. So uh, someone in that role, what, uh, you know, someone might not realize, okay, like, who are the people that, that advise the band from a record company? What does someone in A&R in his role, what is his job? What, is, what does he do and why would he have been in contact with the band? Or I know you said he didn't make the phone call to you, but what is his relationship with the producer or, or an artist? Well, uh, the... There used to be two A&R men. There used to be a Bruce Floor and a guy called Pete Robinson. And um, Pete Robinson was the, was the slightly nerdy, 
guy who um, who was very into the technical musical side of it. Bruce Floor was a good old boy who basically would 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 arrive at the studio, put his credit card down, and say, "That's why I'm here, guys. Let's go and party." You know, that was his thing. I mean, um, <laughs> he was he was so enthusiastic about the Dave Matthews Band. He would. He would stand at the front of the crowd, just just clapping, so out of time clapping that someone actually apparently this is the story. Someone told me that 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 his clapping was so out of time. He didn't realize this, but someone told him it was. So he went and got drum lessons so, so he could learn how to clap in time. I don't know if that's true, but um, isn't that funny? Quite the story. Um, <laughs> but uh but yeah but but bruce was great i mean i love bruce i mean he was you know but uh yeah he would he would like slap his credit card down and say i'm the guy pete robinson was a lot more um considered and and a little bit uh, i think jewish and and had that always like worrying thing about about mm. his uh that, that worrying thing, but A and R stands for artisan repertoire. Artisan so. repertoire. It's it's a it's a it's a job that has pretty much disappeared. To be honest, really? I mean you don't really need A and R people. I mean scouts. You know A and R used to, the, the idea was an A and R man would go to a club, see a band, offer them a record deal and help them find a producer to make a record. That doesn't happen so much anymore. So, you know, but 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 all record companies work different ways. I haven't worked in a record company for 20 years, so I'm, I'm not quite sure. Fair enough. Um, no, completely understandable. I just wanted to get a little more perspective around that. Yeah. Um, oh, right, about who they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. when Corin calls you, Corin's uh, obviously the, the man who manages yep. DMB and has from the start as, as important a figure in the history of the band, uh, for, yeah, not fantastic. including anyone that actually plays an instrument in the band, um, yeah. and has become one of the most uh, influential people in music in general <laughs> these days, if uh, anyone is not familiar yeah, an with An incredible success story. Incredible. Red Light Management yes. is... is is huge and holds a very very good reputation for how they've actually run the business and what the, the success story that is there is kind of that's a whole other topic altogether but when you get the call from him is it steve band decided you're out you know last and final decision is it a two-minute call or are you kind of on the phone with them for 30 60 minutes trying to get an understanding of why this decision has been made i'm just wondering how how you know how no. quick this death was so to speak no it was very quick i, yeah. I had nothing to say i said oh okay and that was it you know had you, had you ever received a call like that before on any other project previous, or was this a first-time thing no, for you no, in your this career? this was the first time. First I've, time. Have I been fired? A couple of times I was, I've been fired, but, uh, but nothing, you know, not, not, not with, with an artist who I'd had proven success with. And, you know, it was, uh, it, you know, and, it, and, and I suppose it should have been Bruce Floor, mm. you know, but he was obviously sort of um a little bit uh yeah just weak so from the time you get the call from corin you don't talk to anyone in the band until basically you get approached again around 2011 about they want to bring you back in to work on an album is that is that accurate yeah i think so wow. i think about then yeah well i don't um i don't really talk to any no dave is famous for his lack of um communication with with people you know He's, uh, this was before, you know, 
I think Blackberries maybe were just starting. Right. This is not quite the cell phone era. No, no, this was, you know, when Roy's cell phone went in the studio at the end of one song on, oh, was it Rapunzel? Was it? You got is it right, something? my man. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good remembering, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was such a, that was a real you know, it's like, wow, someone's cell phone rang in the studio. Well, we need to record, you know, yeah. we'll, um, we'll keep that. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a, a novelty, you know. It was still before anyone had taken photographs of their food. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, no, that's absolutely, absolutely true. So, yeah, no, it is a, it is a different uh, era altogether. How about this? I'm, okay. I, I'm, I'm interested to see what, if you've, how often you've thought about this, uh, and what your answer might be. If the sessions are recorded anywhere else, Bearsville, the plant, a studio in the middle of Texas, anywhere else, does the band finish this record, or in your opinion, do they ultimately, whether the band or the record company, they think they describe, decide to scrap it anyway? Okay, if the band had had two months booked at the record plant, we would have finished the two months at the record plant with slightly better sounding songs because the studio is better. I mean, there's no question about it, but it, at the end of the day, we were looking for feel rather than sound. The band would have been a lot happier because it would have been two months. Then they would have gone home. It would have been more like a holiday, less like a job. As I say, I will stand by my, my definition of a job versus a vocation. And it became a job. And we would have probably gone in to another studio for another two months to finish it off. Uh, now, you know, and then perhaps it was time for a move on. You know, maybe, yeah. but, uh, but every day came and, um, you know, but you can't change history, can you? cannot but you can certainly reflect upon it which is what we're doing Absolutely. now that's what we're doing that's oh what, this is just glorious you have you've been awesome i'm gonna end on some good notes with the song so before we get to that we'll get to the one more thing that, that you know the biggest controversy the reason why we're talking about this to begin with right. is people actually wound up listening to this thing it leaks so it leaks it leaks now it leaks in march of 01 so you get the call in august of 2000 Dave yeah. goes into the studio to do every day, like October-ish or whatever of 2000. Band joins him. They, rec they release a record. Every day comes out in February of 2001. Four to six weeks after every day comes out, it's the Napster era is alive and well. The record leaks. Now, I did some, I did some refreshing research on my own end in advance of us talking here. Here's okay. what I need to know from you, Steve Lillywhite. Okay, Matt Norlander. Okay, so back in the day... If you're a if you're if you're a DMB fan listening to records in riffs and uh, you were not around back then, uh, Steve was plenty available for updates back then as you, as you are now. You've been uh, so gracious with your time with all this, so you would provide the occasional update. But with all of this, you were if if someone wanted to find you and you happened and they found you on the right day, you would have correspondence. Now there was a person named Craig Knapp who was the lead singer of a Dave Matthews band cover band at the time. Right. He apparently 
went on a DMB message board and said, hey, I've been talking to Steve Lillywhite about this stuff, and you had, you had said whatever you had said, right? But at the time, this person obtains a copy of the Lillywhite sessions through whatever weird means he got them, okay? Still plenty of mystery surrounding that. If you have any conspiracy theories, I feel free to promote them on this podcast. You will not get resistance from me. But my question for you, Steve, is this. Okay. Do you actually remember this guy or someone emailing you to say, I've got the Lily White sessions. What do you think? Like, should I release these? What are your thoughts? Because the way this thing happens is the urban legend around it is he emails you. He makes it public to the online fan base. Hey, I've been communicating with Steve Lillywhite. Then someone says, I'm going to fool this dude and make an email address that almost looks exactly like yours, and I'm going to email it back. And then it's the fake you saying, the community deserves this. Go ahead, put it out there. That's how it gets out. What do you remember about any kind of correspondence with anyone contacting you and be like, hey, I got this CD. What do you think about it? Should I release it? Do you remember any of this? No, 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 no. No one ever said that to me. Um, You're you're positive on this. But having said that, I don't know. Well, I certainly, as, you know, I didn't, I never said to someone, go out and release it. Right. Well, that's not in dispute. Someone someone was posing as you when they did that, but apparently someone did email you asking this. Something or other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, oh, if only I could remember, my lord. Uh, <laughs> it would have been a relatively big. Th- I, that's why I want to ask you. If you don't remember, that's fine. But like the idea of you in 2001, right? They haven't done. They haven't made busted stuff yet or anything like that. Right. Right. Um, right, right. But someone like finding you over email, because again, at this time there is no, there's no Twitter. No one's, no one's, no one's DMing you right. on a social media site. They're literally getting to you over your email and you opening it up and someone saying. Hey, I've got these songs that you guys recorded. I figured if that was you and it did happen, you would have been like brushed back in your chair. Like, how if how is a random person? How did you even get this? You know, right, how right, would you right. even? Know? So I didn't know if you had any memories. Having of anyone said that, I I did have various sorts of conversations by email with some fans, mm-hmm. normally girls, uh, but but no guys as well. And you know, like because it was nice to 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 know that I was still known in that community um oh i don't you know it is the sixty-four thousand dollar question how did it happen how did it happen i i i mean i i I mean as i say i i didn't have anything to do with it um i you know am, am i glad that they were released well i suppose it you know I remember someone coming up to me once and saying, wow, you've got the same name as the Lily White Sessions. <laughs> I thought that was funny. My heart broke a little bit. <laughs> so awesome to meet you, dude. You have no idea. There's this awesome uh, recording out there. It's called Lily White Sessions. That's your name, man. That's so crazy. I know. Awesome. Isn't that funny? Um, but uh, no, I, I... God, I don't know. How it got... It, it is... Uh, it is. It, it really is, you know, an all-time mystery as to that. Because there were only, when you guys parted ways and call it March, April of 2000, band members have a copy. Harris Harris showed me when we talked. He still got his two copies or whatever. Oh, right. okay. you, had a, you had a copy, and who I don't even know who else had them, but there was. Oh, Bruce they, Floor, obviously. Bruce had Floor had a copy, okay. So very limited, and it's, it, it's out there for almost a year, and then. I can't even fully depict to our listeners how much of a world-shaking event this was when this thing got released. 
because there was because they had known some of the songs that they had been played live in 2000. You had given updates. Uh, like either yeah. through the band's official side or through DMBM, the mailing list back in the day. And it was like, you had talked about Bartender is going to be this 10 minute huge song, you know, this achievement in the studio. Dave's got this 12 string guitar that he's brought in. So there was a lot of anticipation. The songs never right. come to be. And then practically out of nowhere, it's just in the universe. And the band is rightfully, you know, the, I understand why the band's pissed off. There's no doubt about it. Like there's, you don't, they didn't want it out there, but it did offer up this sense of, Wow, they really like they were really onto something. They were like really onto something. Now what the fans think of a piece of art versus what the artist actually makes, that's that's the forever debate, right, Steve? Like Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um as I say, it's I hadn't lost I hadn't lost um faith in it. You know, I I I thought it was, you know, it, it I, I really enjoyed those those songs. You know, now listening back, it's like, oh, some of them are a bit long and they could have been edited. But all that would have would have been a natural development as you as you make the decisions, the final decisions. You whittle things down, you take out the dead wood and you and you and you clean it up and you make it, you know, and you, and you make it into a presentable format, which is something I've always been very strong about with the band. You know, I've always been able to present their music in a format that's very listenable on a CD, you know, and yeah. that's, that's all that my job is really. It's, 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 you know, making it the best it can be. That's not a live performance. When you it know. gets, when it gets down to it, the reason it didn't happen was more in your opinion, the reason that's never got to be a record. Was it more you or was it more the songs? You know, I don't oh, want you to beat yourself hey, up too much here, but the, it can be both, know, but I'm just so like... At the end of the day, I have to stand up and say, it's my responsibility. I'll take the praise when it's the number one record and I didn't deliver, you know, and I lost the... I lost the, uh, the trust of various people. There was a mutiny. No one stood up for me, and that's fine. I don't ever expect anyone to give me a a free ride. As I say, the only thing that, 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 that I'm ultimately, well, two things that uh, I'm a little bit sad about never having had the chance to finish thing, them. And, but I'm really sad about not getting a fucking credit on busted stuff. Not even a thank you. You know, it's like that was as big a knife in my back as uh, anything. Did you read through it like two or three times to make sure that it wasn't in there? Like you're like, this can't be. I was told. <laughs> well, you were told. You didn't even. I wasn't gonna go out and buy a copy, Matt. I did. Well, you're in the music business. I, I figure seventy of these things land on your doorstep every week. It's you know. No, you... not okay. when you've been fired anymore. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. How did you? How do you? How do you remember? If you remember finding out that the leak happened, like you saw it on the internet, someone called you. Like, do you remember actually how you discovered that the stuff you did, and then being like, did this actually leak? And then you actually listening and be like, uh, holy shit, this actually did. This is what we did. This actually yeah, I, is. Do you remember how that came to you? I don't, I mean, it was all, it was sort of exciting. I seem to remember, you know, like oh, the, the, the DMB boards, mm -hmm. you know, those, those message board things that, uh, that everyone was on. Oh, it's, it's also, I mean, but it, it died. How? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You're good. <laughs> Let's end on a positive note. 
Yes, certainly. Let's talk about the songs, actually. Okay. Yeah. Now you re you you recently went back and listened to this. I did. How long do you think it had been before you listened in the past couple of days? When do you think the last time was you listened to at least some of the Lily White sessions? How long? How much time it elapsed? When did we do it? uh, Since then, probably. You had gone more than twenty years without listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's no point in me listening into it. You know. Okay. Um. So yeah, it was it was nice to listen back to my. my let's go through it. Let's I, go through it track by track here, Steve. How about that? Okay, I got the order. Before Busted. we actually hold on, hold, you know, before we do busted oh. stuff, I got a couple. I got a couple questions here. Okay. 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 First of all, you need to set the record straight. Uh, do you remember number thirty six or number forty being recorded? There's no record of this being on demo, but there has been discussion that both the number forty song, which is always like a little song. It's never been recorded for an album. Number 36, which they repurposed and reshaped for every day. Do you think those two were given a trial run? They they may well have been. You know, when you're in the studio for four months, you, 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 you know, Dave will start playing something and everyone will jam. It's somewhere in the hundreds of hours of, 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 of tapes. But it, I deemed it not, not necessarily worthy of, of putting a star next to the tape. So we come back to it. But you know, it's it, it, you know we may have done a rough version. We may have done a rough version. So, busted stuff. Nice build. The build is nice. Um, Did you put Dave's out- acoustic through an electric amp on that? There's a little yeah. bit of a fuzziness. The same thing that yeah, you did on well, Crash. It comes in after. Okay. It starts off acoustic, and then the electric comes in on the second verse or something. But that is an acoustic through an electric amp, like what you did yeah, on yeah, Crash? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I think it was recorded like that all the way, and I just muted the electric okay. until the second verse. But, yeah. Um, <coughs> even, and even though this is now known as the Lily White Sessions, do you recall if – because there are some articles from back then that Busted Stuff became – the album that's Busted Stuff became Busted Stuff. But Dave said on record, uh, working title for this record was – was busted stuff. Do you remember if that would have been? It, it seemed to be yeah. one of the ones that was that okay. was. Uh... So Gray Street, um, weirdly, Gray Street didn't sound as good as I remembered as I remembered it. Uh, mainly because the acoustic guitar sounded sounded um, not very good, and I don't know. Maybe the mix was a. It was very cluttered. It didn't. It sounded too 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 like they were trying too hard. You know, and Dave's vocal sounded weak. I mean, it's just a, a, a scratch vocal anyway. But um, yeah, that that was not good. And apparently, that was that sounds really good on. I remember it does. Someone... That's probably the best cut on Busted stuff. On or the that... song that they wrote there that they didn't. You never know. Um, it's also on Busted yeah. stuff. It's it's those two basically. But yeah, right. Okay. Uh, was Gray uh, Street one of the last ones that they would have done that you think you would have cut like later in the sessions? Yeah, no, 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 no. It was one of the earlier ones. It was it, okay. It, it, it um yeah, I don't know, but we spent a long time on it trying to, you know, anyway. But 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 that for some reason didn't really do it for me it was it sounded a little i would have re-recorded that anyway did you did you like her i actually like this but maybe you listen back 20 years later and you don't i like the delay effect you put on dave's voice in those verses she said i pray and you got to i like that but did you like when you listen to it again did you hear that be like yeah that makes sense or like eh, 20 years hindsight maybe i would have taken that out i'm just curious I didn't mind it. Yeah, I thought it was good. It was, it was, you know, something that that uh, okay. just a little thing. Um, digging a ditch was like a bullseye for me. I yes. love how that sounded. Uh, wow, 
The drums really sound good. so good. Like, here's one thing, Steve. Like, when I when I hear what you and what Harris has said about the studio, I get it. But I was when I was listening to Ditch again, I was like, well, damn. Like, the drums on this track sound incredible. Now, maybe the drums fit the, the vibe of the song or whatever. But between that and, like, Roy, he's tight and loose at the same time, like, playing some seventh notes. I don't know. I'm, I'm agree. You, bullseye, right? You yeah, bullseye. Yeah. Uh, and the, 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 the scratched record at the end, that was Dave's yes. idea. It yeah, was Dave's yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. I like it. So I've, I've got I've got three stars for that one. Uh, Sweet Up and Down, again, a one star. Um, one star. Okay, I have a quote for you. Hold on. I got a quote. I got to see if I, if, I, if I trigger a memory here. This is okay. Dave Matthews to the Denver Rocking Mountain News in July of 2000. All right, he's talking about Sweet Up and Down. Uh, he's talking about maybe one night we play a song one way, we play it slower or faster, whatever. He goes, there's a part we thought that would be a minor part uh, and it's clear it should become a major part. It's called Sweet Up and Down. We've been playing it, a part that I thought could be in the song quite a bit, but Steve said, we don't want to put that in the song too much, but once we started playing it live, it was one of those parts that the crowd really got off on, so now we're going to throw it in all the time. What part do you think that is? I'm wondering if it's like his... Um, it wouldn't be the chorus. He's got a little bit of that uh, mumbo-jumbo that he starts the song off with. Do you have any memories of what he might have been talking about there? There's not a lot of distinctiveness to this song. No, no, okay. I, I've got no idea. Um, okay. Yeah, it it, it, it didn't. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's got a it's got a very forced viol, you know, a, a sort of stock, a stock boyd violin solo on it, which is pretty average. Um, didn't didn't really. Yeah, it didn't do it for me. Um, JTR better. You know, I, I I certainly the outro of JTR is great. Um, Dave's guitar is actually sounds pretty good on that one and, and very big and, and flowing and fat and lovely. Um, the end of that song, Steve is like one of the five best studio moments this band has ever put on tape, my man. Okay. That's very kind of, I I've, I've got great outro. Yes. That's, that's what <laughs> that's, I on that. You might be underselling it actually. Uh, every, just <laughs> no. everything. And that effect you put on Boyd's violin, that like yeah. decaying echo delay, yeah. Awesome. And then you got Roy like counter harmonies all over. It's just big yeah, time, big great. time, big time. God, Grace is uh, a big eyed fish. I, I again, I don't know how the re-recording of that. Was, it is. But, it is markedly it, different. Um, I would right, say right. from a fan's perspective, uh, you might get it split. And right. nowadays, the song often segues into bartender. Here, it is solo with a proper ending and a different lyrical structure. Um, this is considered certainly one of the best cuts off the record by the fan base, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've got it as a as a three star. I've got the the, the no way. Yes, section. it's just that's beautiful. I mean that that right? for me is just like really heartfelt and um, and and just a sweet little little thing. Again, for Grace is Gone, I thought Grace is Gone was a was a sort of Lanoir like, um, sort of earthy, country blues song. Perfectly good enough for a record. So you think I'm gonna? So you think that Grace is Gone, Big Eyed Fish, and Digging a Ditch? Upon re-listening, those are the three best cuts. Yeah. Those are the three those you like the, the most. Three that I, I I felt were were the closest to being finished. Okay, now before you say what you're about to say about Captain, I need to tell you that this was drastically changed on Busted Stuff. It 
this recording, I th- I think this song, this this the recording of this song gets to the essence of why a lot of people really take to the Lily White sessions. It's got a haunting sax. It's dark. It's longing. It's desperate. Um, you've got this active Carter drum part going against the gloominess of what Davis is singing about. The bridge is just an amazing piece of studio work as far as I'm concerned. So, um, and I think on the bridge, it's just Dave, Roy, and Boyd. There's no Carter. There's no Stefan. And that's something that I don't know how often, if ever, there was a part on a record that was more than, say, a second or two where it was just those three. There was no rhythm section. It was just those three. So I'm just, I, I know you didn't grade this high, but I'm just letting you know this song in particular maintains a high reputation among fans all these years later because it's so drastically different from the studio cut and really what they grew the song oh, to be right. like. Okay. Yeah, I, all I've got written next to Captain, I, I had it as a three star, but then I took it back to two star because I, I felt like maybe just the mix or something. I, I, it's just the saddest song, it is. I think, days. It's very sad. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Bartender's pretty good. The outro is, you know, the whole song's too long. How? I mean, I uh, so it's about 10 minutes. Is it too long yeah, by 30 seconds or three minutes? Three minutes. Cut that, three minutes. Well, cut three yeah. minutes. Seven minutes is still fucking long. You know, it's yeah. still <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody. But Roy, uh, on the outro, my man, that like, that <laughs> is, that is, that is some of... Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk up your work and talk up the band okay. here. Okay, all right. I, I, Did you not I, realize I, when you were recording this that, like, when you, like Roy's awesome all the time, but like on this yeah. particular track, I figure you said you mixed it all in one morning, which is yeah. friggin' mind blowing to me. You're just like, ah, just you know, take four hours, have some eggs, and and just create this thing. But when you actually were recording and tracking, I mean, Roy's got to have four or five different sax tracks on this thing. Yeah, it's yeah, awesome. yeah. We we really went to town. I loved texturing with Roy. I mean, he never, he was brand new. I mean, no, we'd done four albums. This was the fourth album, but his recording career had never been other than just blowing one sax because he comes from the jazz world, you know? So I I, I loved getting him to think in terms of stacking his sax. And, And he really came to the, came to the party. He was fantastic. You know, we, we had great times at night you know, building up parts and... Um, he really embraced that process in the studio, like he wanted to dig into the... Yeah, 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 yeah. He was, he, was, uh, he was so much fun, except when he was grumpy. But um. <laughs> but then again, isn't everyone? But that's 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 good to know because I think after you know, he's he's been uh, he hasn't been with us for almost fourteen years now, and fans always oh, like to know. And he was the, he was the one that was you know the least quoted, quiet, sunglasses on the stage, but yeah. so much of who he was and a lot of his soul came out in both live recordings, but particularly in the studio. So it's it's interesting yeah. to learn how much. You know, he gave to the work, believed in the process, and he'd really want to. You know, he'd want to kind of get in there with you and. Uh, and really, yeah. you know, invest- yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a great, great relationship with him. In probably, yeah, a little bit better with, I mean, with, with Carter, we didn't really ever talk about overdubs because Carter would just do his drum track and he'd be finished, you know. So there was never one on one time with Carter, except when he did congas. And uh, that was always funny because he, as great a drummer as he is, I don't think he would ever say he's a great conga player. But uh, but but we had fun doing the congas. It was great. I'm smiling thinking about that the times. Yeah, very good. Monkey Man. Um, Let's go deep on this, my man. This song has never been played live by the band. 
This is the uh, this is why I'm most thankful for the Lily White sessions existing because I think this song is among the 30 best the band has ever done, and yeah. it's never been played. If we didn't know about the Lily White sessions, no one would know this. the The existence of this song, Steve, is what makes DMB fans think: Do they have another three, seven, twenty of these things just sitting in a vault somewhere, and no one even yeah. knows the existence of? As I say, Monkey Man was my favorite when we were recording, um, and I think maybe. I'm the mix or something. Maybe there was another version that was a better one, and I chose this version. I don't know. Especially for the for the for the seeing the man under the ice section, the, the whole the whole second half of it. I remember thinking it was. There were times when I had it more like Pink Floyd. I get a Radiohead vibe off of that part of the song. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, we were we were quite into Radiohead at the time, you know. Um, you know, uh, 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 what was the Radiohead album? Uh, at this time, well, you would have had oh, Kid A is right around yeah, this time. That, okay, was, computer is okay. Computer. Yeah. It was around the times of okay, computer. So we, I, I personally was a huge fan of that record. Carter, this is Monkey Man is Carter's best track on the album, as far as I'm concerned. Like you listen yeah. back to that drum track, it's 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 a joke. It's fantastic. I mean, he's you know, I, I to, to question the, the the quality of the recording as to why this record didn't see the light of day is may have a little bit to do with it. But you know, I don't think they sound that bad because when it sounds good, it sounds great. It just doesn't sound good all the time. And that's my job to, to go, okay, this one sounds good. This one sounds good. This one sounds fucking brilliant. Let's do this one again. We know we can do it. But, you know, I never had that chance. Did so, you feel, uh, um, before we get to the final two here, with Monkey Man in particular, or any of these songs, did you feel like, from what you can recall, I know it's tough, we're going on 20 years here, but like uh, this, the two or three songs that maybe the band would have had the most... Uh, Optimism, inspiration. We wanna, we wanna keep hammering this home. Do you recall what ones that might have been? Well, Monkey Man, I seem to remember recording it a lot of times, which is why I think I may have not used one. I mean, they, I was, I was editing between takes, and I was, you know, when I, when I would capture a piece of brilliance, I would use it and join it to yesterday's take. So. What it sounds like, like you're hearing it all like one take, I would be capturing various different things and piecing them all together. So okay. um, I think that I may have missed something on Monkey Man. I don't know. I, w I would have to go back and... Uh, Do you still have... You said you haven't listened 20 years, but like Harris still has his CDs. Do you think you lost those long ago? Do you think they're somewhere... I don't have yesterday's lunch i've got i've got no okay. idea where you know i don't care about all right fair fair enough um, things. Uh, final I, two I, songs on the uh on the on the on the sessions here kit kat jam which is an incomplete lyrical mess i get that yeah. but the song itself is yeah. it goes it's, i was uh, very impressed by the powerhouse song. Oh. it can it's a it can bludgeon you and then it's soaring five thousand yeah, yeah, feet yeah, in the yeah. air there's like, no question that 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 was it just needed a bit more time yeah you know and and they did it and i presume it turned out really well uh, they, how about this? I love how I'm like breaking news to you. That's 20 years old. They recorded it for busted stuff. They did not. That is a, that is an instrumental. They did not put any lyrics down for that on the record now. And it doesn't get played a ton a lot, but 
I don't even know if there were ever any finished lyrics on it, but on Busted Stuff, when they went to Harris, oh, it got bandied about. And you can hear this on the Busted Stuff episode um, where they were like, how about we just don't do lyrics on this one? And apparently Dave was like, oh, fine by me. And so anyway, they did. And it, okay. It does right. sound, so it is on Busted Stuff, like it's captured pretty well, but it's just a straight instrumental of the song. Yeah. And yeah. then okay. here's the one where I think we might find some common ground here. Raven. So... First of all, I assume this order is not what you thought the actual track list would be. This is just an assembly of songs, right? It doesn't seem I, like a... Looking at it, it's something that I, I put... I do put some thought into whatever track list I do because looking at it, I... I yeah, there's a reason. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they, they, it was an idea of a track list. It wasn't like I wasn't thinking... But it wasn't like, this is the album. It was like, okay. well, let's live with this as a track listing and see what we think. Raven, as the last one, has always just felt to me like, hmm, um, it might end on a little bit of a, a quizzical note there. This is the one where I feel like it's a minute too long. Maybe one one verse too many. I don't know if you thought the, the same on that yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it. I, I, you know, I'm not sure whether... There was one too many songs anyway, because how many is it? One, two, three, it's 12 four, here. Yeah, it could have been 10 or 11. Okay. You know, I mean, if you took, I mean, if Dave had never take Sweet Up and Down off, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Re-record Grey Street and drop either Raven or Kit Kat Jam. You could uh, have done that. You sound like you put Roy's horn through some sort of filter on Raven. I don't know. You got to really listen yeah. carefully. I don't know if you remember doing that, but it was it's, yeah, yeah, it's his 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 horn sounds different on that track than maybe almost anything you'd right. ever done. Um, all right, there's a song that leaked called "Build You a House" that's not on the Lily White sessions, but it leaked nonetheless. Right. Something about this it, song feels like just early sort of DMV to me. Yeah, and yeah. it's like it, when I hear it, I actually feel it. It feels like something that Dave would have written in like '94. Now I know he didn't, but when I hear it, I'm like, this doesn't even yeah. sound like it's from the same session. There, didn't know if uh, you had any yeah, memories about. Maybe he had it. He had it left over, and he he was just tried to fit it in somewhere. I mean, I think it's okay. Uh, yeah, it's a cute cute little song, but I I it didn't really fit the 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 the, the sonic. It, it didn't fit the mood of what this album was. You know, it was a it was a little bit too cheery. But you know, but 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 the thing about a music, especially, you know, you can have the most saddest song, but it can make you happy because it can make you think, "Wow, someone's more unhappy than me." I've got, you know, I I can see the good things in life, and I think that may, you know. Personally, that's how I feel. I, I, I can listen to sad songs and feel elated after hearing them. You know, they can take me back to feeling better. You know, sometimes when I'm sad, I don't want to listen to fucking, and I'm happy. You know, that, that, that just makes me more depressed. What I want to hear is something that's sad like this, and that brings me out of it. Did you feel a, a sense of personal worth or validation in the months after this leaked uh, that would have equaled like having produced a record that went to number one, just even though, you know, cause at the time this was probably downloaded by maybe even millions of people on Napster or whatever. I, I just wonder from, from a personal standpoint and the, and the role of producer, this was never meant to get out, but eventually it did get out. So it's in the world and all these people are listening to it. And the responses are very positive. It even gets, you know, 
a, a legitimate record review in in a, in a major publication at the time, and and I just wonder if uh, if that helped heal the wound that had been made after you got fired from doing the record. Oh well, yeah, I mean it, it was you know it was nice that it was you know I mean I probably the thing that tipped it was that it was named after me. <laughs> you know I mean that's yes. that's at least I I get. I get the I get the credibility at least, um, and I'm proud of it. You know, it's just like it's a little bit like you know not finished, yeah. uh, and 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 you know it was never supposed to be heard in this format. You know, did that I mean, feel weird it, for you that it was? I mean, it's their songs are shining, but it's your work on it. That this idea that like I'm 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 still like I could understand Steve if you had the same. Uh, responses the band frankly where it's like no, I, it's, I, at, I, at the know. end of the day it's never quite as close to me as it is to them okay. you know uh that's the thing i mean i i i you know it's it's their world I, I i dip in and out of their world and you know i'm i'm in a few worlds or i in my life i've been in a few people's worlds you know and i'm very proud of the worlds i've been part of but and I'm very proud of the you know the time I was in the Dave Matthews Band world. It was it was brilliant. I loved it. And you know, there's some moments of absolute joy and wonder in these. And I don't see it as particularly depressing when I hear it now. I mean, I don't. It's certainly not as dark as before these crowded streets. I mean, that was actually a much darker album. This is a little bit more. I mean, maybe lyrically, but it's just. This is a little bit more sprightly. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, Big Eyed Fish and, and I mean, even Digging a Ditch is cute. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. It doesn't, doesn't sound so ridiculous. It, you know, would it have been as big a hit as Every Day? Probably not. You know, I don't know how many Every Day sold. He probably needed to have done that, you know. Let's end, to, on, a, let's end on a happy note. Anything yeah. else we have, like, when you, th I want you to provide, if anything springs to mind, a joyful memory from these sessions. Because, again, I think one of the important things about this conversation is there's been, an, there's been an interpretation that if the band continued to make the Lily White sessions, maybe it would have been so arduous that it would have broken them and they would have wound up, you know, splitting uh, for a time where that doesn't really seem like it was the case at all. Like, they, no. you know, it was a tough no, process. No, but time, they, I told you there was a time much earlier that Dave said to me that he was, that he was thinking. And, and, you know, it was during Crash. It was during the Crash sessions. During the Crash sessions, he, he came up to me and, and, we were very close at that point. You know, he looked at me like an uncle, like the dad that, 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 that he lost so young. And, um, and he was saying, I don't know, no one, you know, I try my best and there's moaning and, you know, and I said, Dave, keep it together. He says, I, I could do it on my own, you know. I said, yeah, but there's something about a band. And all I was doing was just sort of repeating the, 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 what I'd picked up from you too. You know, the idea that if you have a band, you have a brand. Whereas if you're a solo artist, I mean, yes, it's great. You make more money probably, but for Dave, it was never about the money. It was about the, 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 the fun, I suppose. I said, you can do it. It's just like family. You'll get over it and you'll look back and you'll laugh at these. And he says, yeah, maybe you're right. So, you know, I, I would like to think that 
that I had, you know, obviously he makes his own decisions, but, but at that time I was quite close to him and, and, and I would like to think that he would take my advice as someone who'd had a good 15, 20 years more in the music business than him, who, who could see the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the raggedy road to, to, to stardom, you know, and, and to being happy. So, yeah, so he did um, obviously stay together uh, and they, and to this day, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, um, and I'm excited. I, I think I'm probably ready to go and, listen to their new album when it comes out. How about that? That Yeah, as we record this in uh, May of 22 here, it's supposed to be coming out uh, in a few months there. Um, yeah. You've been uh, you've been amazing, Steve. Thank you so much. I mean, I, at some point, we're going to talk about non-DMB stuff. I mean, we did, you know, in person, but I'm talking like, I want to hear... I want to hear your Guster stories and your Counting Crows stories and your oh, just okay. absolute debauchery from the 1970s and 80s. That's what that's what I really we got to dig into. It was account. never that much debauchery. Okay. It was just purely for the art. Purely Everything for- was 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 to make good art. That's what we always wanted. We didn't care about the punters. We wanted if we were happy or certainly when I was making records, if I was happy with it, then I thought that's good enough. You know, not every record's successful, but you know, if you if you can go to bed at night and think that what you've done is meaningful, then there's meaning meaning in your life. There you go. And on that, I'm not wise at all, Matt. I'm just a fucking idiot. No, but no, there no. you go. <laughs> no, Steve, thank you so much for talking. I appreciate it. Uh, I look forward to us hopefully getting to meet in person again soon. And uh, we appreciate you hopping on the pod here, and we'll talk about uh, many happier things in the in the years to come. That's great. Well, great to see you because we are looking at each other, Matt Norlander, although this will only be a podcast, I hope. <laughs> this I'm is good. only a podcast, I swear. Yes, we are, okay. We are absolutely good there. You are, uh, thank you for taking the time here. I appreciate you, you know, being so honest and uh, and sharing. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, could yeah. share. This is going to... Uh, Life is good, and I don't know if any of the band are listening, but I would just like to, to give them my best wishes and uh, wish them all the best. My thanks to Steve for that. I do not take it for granted. That interview was a long time coming, and I do certainly hope you enjoyed it. We went long. We could have gone longer, but a little peek behind the curtain. He was getting ready to start packing up, and he had to fly back to Indonesia, so I didn't want to you know, take up a significant portion of his day as he was getting ready to, uh, to head on back. You know, He took ownership here in a way that I find to be commendable. It sure seems like the band was more frustrated with him and obviously the environment of recording the songs, not to mention maybe the, the sound of some of these songs, there was more frustration there than there seemed to be with each other, and I think that's important to know. Um, still, it's such a fascinating collection of recordings, which if you weren't already aware, you can listen to the Lily White sessions on YouTube. They've been there for years and years and years. So if you've reached this point in the podcast, I'd recommend seeking them out and rediscovering them. Or if you are just a casual music fan, just go find them, and I'd be interested in your feedback and uh and how you how you hear them if you're getting to them for the first time. I had planned on doing this interview, by the way, in 2020, on the occasion of the 20-year anniversary of the recordings happening, but at that point, Lily White was working through a book project about his entire career, and he kept nudging me off, the thinking being that he would hop on and we'd talk once he was finished with that, 
I know some people listening were aware of that, but the book project is now off, if you're curious. He, it became too much of a chore. So, thus, we finally got to do this interview. Um, there is no book coming. Prior to recording this episode, when meeting with Lily White in New York City, I learned some other things as well, including some of the details of his involvement with Away From The World, what worked, what issues wound up bubbling up near the end of that process as well. Perhaps that's something for another time. We didn't dive too, too much into it on this episode, but it's clear in both my on-record conversations with him over the years, and even in our informal recent chats, that he still has immense respect for DMB, even if there are scars that that still show. Um, all right, some quickies from me to wrap, including a little bit of additional info. You heard us get into Monkey Man, and how about Lily White saying there was a different version that he remembered mixing? That's... Quite the tantalizing thing to dangle out there. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I can only imagine what that must sound like. Here's a nugget for DMB fans, though. This is scarcely tied to the modern drummer piece on Beaufort that I'm still working on. But I know for a fact he was... How shall I put this? He was re-familiarized with this song, at least for a day in 2021. Matthews was as well. I know this because it's part of my story research for the piece that I'm doing. And I brought it up with Beaufort when I interviewed him first last year. I can get into a bit more detail on that after the after the article eventually comes out. But I maintain there is no bigger gift the band could ever give to its fan base in a lot at least in a live setting than by playing the song Monkey Man just completely out of nowhere. It's never been played live. I know it's the longest of long shots, but just just unleash this on an unsuspecting public and watch the jaws drop. This song is so damn good. Even in its Lily White Sessions form, it sounds pretty much done. You know, DMB has done some cool things to surprise its base over the years. If it ever decided to take this out of the box and just shock us all, it would be, frankly, phenomenal. And I think the current iteration of DMB could dominate this tune. I refuse to give up hope. Uh, I thought Steve's grades and evals for the tracks were pretty interesting, too. How about Grace, Ditch, and Big Eyed Fish as the ones he thought were the best? That was fun to learn. Um, I'm going to have to disagree with them about chopping off three full minutes of Bartender. Uh, I don't know about that. By the way, my top five off the LWS, I would go JTR, Monkey Man, Bartender, Big Eyed Fish, and I think it's got to be Captain in that top five. Uh, as for Lily White, as he was going back and grading through those songs and listening, it called to mind my favorite experience of doing these interviews with Steve. And that's when I did the 20-year retrospective article for Relics Magazine about Crash and I was on the phone with him he started playing like four or five songs on that album while he was talking to me and was just riffing off memories and a bunch of oh yeah I forgot about that it was really really cool I wish I still had that recording I think a previous hard drive crash on a different computer though gobbled it up forever as I said at the top he's a funny guy he's a great storyteller dude's got stories for days the irony of this whole situation is that these sessions went awry but it's not in his nature to be someone who is a spoil sport. Like, he's a good hang. And I don't say that as just someone who's interviewed him uh, completely subjectively. I've also heard it from other musicians who have worked with him. He pushes bands, creative boundaries, and normally that yields such rewarding outcomes. For example, soon after the Lily White sessions fell apart, he worked with Counting Crows on their record, Hard Candy. That album sounds tremendous. It probably ranks as their most underrated overall in that catalog. Anyway. I'm digressing. Uh, let's move to the next phase. The final installment in this podcast miniseries will be a deep dive on the everyday Lily White Sessions fallout when DMB was prompted to take all those songs into the studio in early 2002, keeping most but scrapping a few. 
And then we'll get into the story behind that record being made. Producer Steve Harris will be back on the show for that. And he's got some he's got some compelling recollections about making that record. So we'll talk to you soon for part three. <laughs>